0: Crime
1: survivors wanna see folks who've caused harm turn their lives around. So much of what crime survivors are asking for is I never want you to do this to anyone else again.
2: Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Before we start today, this is the final opportunity if it's in any way an opportunity for you to send in questions for our Ask Me Anything episode. If you have anything, anything at all you would like to hear me answer on that show, send it in an email to EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You can just write it in text. Don't need to do a voice memo or anything. Again, that is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. The Ask Me Anything episode is being recorded very soon. Um, So don't wait. Today's episode though. Today's episode is a beginnings. It's a beginning of something I want to explore much more on this show. Um, something I've been starting to talk about here is nonviolence. You heard it in my conversation with Tanasi Coates. Out of that conversation came a piece on imagining a nonviolent state, or at least imagining a state that 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 pursued the ethic of nonviolence, that that, that took it seriously. And I hope you read that piece. It's It's an important piece to me, and I wanted to find and to spark a discussion. I'll I'll put a link to it in show notes, or you can just Google imagining the nonviolent state or go to my Vox author page. But as I've been exploring this idea, um, the movement to me that seems to hold the most promise is a seed for change and reimagining how we run the criminal legal system, and from there, reimagining our social and political relations with each other is the restorative justice movement. This is a movement pioneering a really radically different approach to how we think about crime, how we create space for repair and for transformation. It's not, I really want to say this. Nonviolence is a tough word. Restorative justice is sometimes, like this is not soft stuff. It has better outcomes. There have been multiple meta-analyses where they've looked at dozens and dozens of studies and they show that it leads to less recidivism, leads to more satisfaction and healing for the survivor of the crime, that it costs less money, But it's difficult. It forces a kind of moral courage from all of us. The current system doesn't ask for. And what it demands, the way it imagines the aftermath of a harm committed individually has profound lessons for the harms we've committed societally. So I think there's something that is also on a macro scale very relevant to this moment. I wanted somebody on the show who could talk about it, who could provide an introduction to it, not just philosophically, but as a practitioner, somebody who's had to go through it in some ways themselves. Um, And that person is Sujatha Balaga. She's just a remarkable person. She's a director of the Restorative Justice Project. She's a 2019 recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's a survivor of abuse and crime herself. She is done this work. She's building the structures to scale this work. And I think you can hear in her vision and, and see in the results of the things that she has done a path to something better here. Um, so here without further ado is Sujatha Baliga. Sujatha Baliga, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Ezra.
2: You're a very intimidating interview. I don't know if you know this, because you have both <laughs> this amazing sort of personal story and you represent this sort of remarkable movement. And it's very hard to to know where to start with that. So let's try to combine them. T- tell me the story of how you found your way to restorative justice.
1: Thank you for asking me to start with story, because I think uh, the most important part of restorative justice in many ways is the stories that we tell one another and how we come to know one another more deeply through story. So my own personal story with restorative justice really begins in rural Pennsylvania in the 1970s and 80s, where my family, an immigrant family from India, um, we were struggling in many ways um, from social isolation, et cetera, and also because While my father was a really wonderful man in a number of regards, he was also quite abusive towards all of us in some ways, but towards me, um, he was sexually abusing me. And it was a secret I kept for many, many years um, until basically he was on his deathbed when I was 16. And I think when I look back on that time in my life, it was um, the very systems that were in theory designed to protect me uh, that ensured my silence, right? I had no interest in being separated from my family Um, I had no interest in my father being taken away in handcuffs or potential immigration consequences for my family. So for all of these reasons, you know, I think I feared protection um, and I feared help more than I thought that it would ever be coming in any way that was meaningful. And so for me, what would have been meaningful would have been for my family to heal, for this to be uh, brought out into the light, for us to have... Understood where these things came from, so I think that's you know really where the journey begins. And I think after my father passed away when I was sixteen, I really just spent so many years seeking justice. You know, I became ultimately became a victim advocate after college, through college, and after college, and and working in an in intimate partner violence uh, organizations, domestic violence shelters, rape crisis, uh, working to try to end child sexual abuse within my own community, and went to law school thinking I was going to be a prosecutor, which is really funny uh, to everyone who knows me to this day. Um,
2: Can I can I ask you something about that very quickly? please, Please, please. You were saying that you had worked as a victim's rights advocate. Was the connection to prosecutor that it seemed from that vantage point that the prosecutor is the person working on behalf of the victim in our system? right? Was that the connection for you?
1: No, but see, it was more like I was thinking that I might be a social worker and then realized that, you know, I would have no power and I wanted more power to help. It was actually through, while I was primarily working sort of in shelter type situations, I found that there were the few circumstances under which I was assisting the prosecution in preparing survivors to testify. The interests of the crime survivor were not being centered. So this was like in my early twenties, right? And I'm like, I think I was like 21, and I was assisting a family and getting ready to prepare to testify at trial. And the prosecutor I was speaking with told me to like keep them as angry as possible and like really just keep like how to present them in the most broken and angry and devastated ways. And I was thinking this has nothing to do with their healing and this, we weren't really listening to their desires and their interests and their their needs. And so I thought, I'll go be a prosecutor and be a different kind of prosecutor, Who really centers crime survivors' needs? I think that was what really drew. I wanted more power to actually effectuate change, and I I thought that that might be um, on behalf of others, right? Um, But as I learned more uh, about how my hands might have been tied as a prosecutor, right, what the objectives are as a prosecutor, it was not a good match for my politic or my own understanding for my own history, right? Like I'm like, why am I pushing people towards something that I myself didn't want was not a connection I made when I was applying to law school,
2: so, so I apologize. I interrupted your your story there.
1: No, no. So, yeah, I was living in Mumbai, and I had an incredible sort of experience that came from actually a total and complete breakdown. I fell completely apart due to this all this unresolved trauma from my childhood. Like I had a story that my father dies when I'm 16, and then the problem is over, right? The abuse is gone, and. And, and it never occurred to me that there might be more sexual assaults, more violence in my life after his death. And and all of these things sort of pushed me over the edge. And I went off backpacking by myself. And in some ways, maybe it was some sort of suicide mission. I never know whether or not I was trying to kill uh, myself in the physical form, really, or whether or not there was just a, a rebirth that was required in some other way. And I landed in Dharamshala, Um Actually, it's called a cloud gun, where the Dalai Lama lives. And I ended up through an unbelievable course of events, getting a private audience with him for an hour. Um, and he gave me some advice on letting go of my anger because my anger was really killing me back then.
2: Before you get to that advice, could you actually talk through the, I've heard you talk through this course of events. And I think to somebody listening, how some... From rural Pennsylvania, wandered into Dharamsala and got an audience of the Dalai Lama. It's you can sort of fall into the hole in that story. So, so yeah, how did this surely. happen?
1: When I landed in Dharamsala when I was 20, uh, I think I was 24 at that time. Yes, I was 24 years old, and I tumbled out of this bus late at night. Um, the bus had broken down like twice on the way there. Uh, hairpin journey and uh, you know, muddy roads really just terrifying traveling by myself. And I get to the closest uh, guest house that you know, was do- in my dog-eared copy of The Lonely Planet India. <laughs> and it's a Tibetan-owned building that is being built, actually. It was, it was just kind of uh, one story at that time. And they gave me a bed at the basement of their place. Um, and over the course of the next few days, uh, I got to know this family a little bit. And in these incredible conversations that I had with them, you know, it sort of was the first time I started talking about this deep struggle I had with the rage and fury I had towards my father uh, for having sexually abused me. And at everyone, anyone who harmed children, anyone who harmed women, anyone who harmed trans people, um, anyone who harmed people of color, like it was just this seething rage. And I had migraines and stomach problems and derailed relationships over and over and over again. And, and so um, at some point, you know, in listening to their journeys, our conversation deepened quite quickly because most people come to um, McLeod Ganj looking to meet Tibetans and hear about meditation and mantras and, you know, they want to know if the Dalai Lama can levitate and like, things like this, right? And um, And I, you know, was trauma girl, so I was like, tell me all about escaping and tell me about... The horrors that you experienced and tell me how it is that you get out of bed every morning and how are you even vaguely happy, let alone as happy as you are. And I I don't want to make them prisoners of Shangri-La the way that those people who come to talk to them do, but I was deeply moved by what I was seeing in terms of a level of psychological well-being in the face of what they had experienced um, that was inspirational to me. So um, in the course of these conversations, one of them sort of nudged me to write a letter to the Dalai Lama asking him, uh, How does one forgive intrafamilial uh, sexual harm? How, how do you, you know, when uh, an ongoing harm within families, you know? And I think the conversation came in part too from a realization that uh, trauma begets trauma, begets trauma, and the Tibetan community was starting to see things since the invasion. By China, um, in their own community, higher levels of domestic violence, and you know, nothing was being studied per se. It was all anecdotal, but it was, it was just they heard what I was saying in my own life being reflected in some of what they were seeing in their community, and and they were like, "Go oh, ask His Holiness." Um, so I was like, "How do you do that? How do you ask Dal Lama a question?" And it turns out that one of the people in that family was a protocol officer for the Central Tibetan Government, and he just said in this extremely casual way to just. Write him a note and told me what door to drop it off in this very modest building behind the temple. It turns out that that's the entrance to the Dalai Lama's office. And so a week later, I got notice that uh, they wanted me to come back, and I spent several meetings with the Dalai Lama's um, private secretary, who is the person who makes decisions about whether or not uh, someone gets to meet the Dalai Lama. Those meetings were life changing for me. Tenzin Gichi, Taitong, um was incredible, and um, Yeah. So a week later, I was sitting with the Dalai Lama for an hour. It's a pretty amazing experience. Um, And he gave me some really specific advice on forgiveness. But what was really beautiful, and I think what was really critical in that hour was that even though I pressed his holiness really hard for advice on how to forgive my father, his holiness was really reticent to give me a formula. And uh, I think the most powerful moment of that interview was when His Holiness actually asked me, do you feel you've been angry long enough? And I think that that is a question that is sitting with me very much today. You know, I think in particular about the rush that we have towards forgiveness, in particular, the expectation that we have that others rush to forgiveness, a sort of absolution for past harms. And I think it's really important to pause, to slow down, to to ask that question, do you feel you've been angry long enough? So- This is quite a long-winded way of getting to your question of how it is that I ended up in restorative justice, (laughs) but basically I started law school just a couple months after meeting His Holiness and after having gone and sat a meditation course immediately after meeting His Holiness and having had an experience of forgiving my father during that meditation course, um, and then the rage that was fueling my desire to put people behind bars, if it was ever really my desire uh, to do that, wasn't there to fuel my work, and I ended up meeting one of my, um, you know, heart mentors in in my work as a as an attorney, uh, David Rudovsky, was my criminal law professor in my first year. Um, and through my conversations with him, I actually decided to become a defense attorney, and so that sort of led me down a different road for a decade, where I got to see the failings of the criminal legal system from within. And realized that neither prosecution nor defense was how we were going to heal this. So,
2: What were those failings to you? What what did you see in your time as a defense attorney that disillusioned you?
1: I mean, one of the things, one of the cases that I think most broke my heart was there was a young man who had intervened uh, in a a young African-American man uh, had intervened in a domestic violence dispute between his cousin and the father of her child. And he put his body in between the two of them and it escalated. And in the end, he ended up stabbing the other guy to death. And um, the family was just enraged and all they wanted from him was an apology. And they really, like a lot of them witnessed it and they were like, you took it too far. Like it didn't need to go all the way there, right? And um, he was looking at 25 years, right? And so I was actually his, uh, his appellate attorney and there was an open and shut appellate sort of, um, issue in the case. And what was really hard was that, you know, he wanted to apologize. He just wanted to say, I'm sorry. And I knew we were going to be getting him a new trial and I just couldn't let him do it. Right. Because he was serving a 25 year sentence for something should have never been charged, uh, the way it was. Um, and there was evidence that was excluded, uh, that, Clearly was exculpatory. It might not have been a hundred percent exculpatory, but an apology was going to be something that could be used in court against him. Some level of, you know, mens rea that I didn't want to give the other side. So this was this was deeply troubling.
2: This is something that as we get more into restorative justice, that that I was shocked reading the literature, and of course it makes sense now. But the fact that the system as set up makes it a strategic disaster. To take responsibility for a crime is a, is a really profound thing, actually.
1: Yeah. Our current system disincentivizes truth telling. Our system, like when you think about the Miranda warnings in and of themselves, like who's gonna want to tell you the truth after that? Right? Anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law? Well, don't say anything, obviously. Right? Um, and when I think about All of the crime survivors I have worked with over the years, you know, what do they want? They want to know what happened and why. And it's literally the exact information that as a defense attorney, I would have never encouraged my clients to to give up, right? I mean, this is if you're practicing in a way that isn't, I think, as holistic as you might be. You know, again, I want to be really, really mindful of the fact that there are countless defense attorneys who will find ways to develop deep, deep and meaningful and total and complete relationships with their clients, right? Um, but the machine itself is set up to, um, yeah, to disincentivize the truth.
2: And how did you come across restorative justice in this time? Because when, when when you start doing this work, it's there, but it's a little bit better known now, but even now, not that well known, but then quite small.
1: Yeah. So, you know... Um, It's my friend, Susan Marcus, uh, who first introduced me to the concept of restorative justice. It was when we were still in law school together, and uh, she kept talking to me about restorative justice, and I would listen to her, and I I was always... Uh, moved by what she was saying, but I also thought it was this impossibility that people could come together uh, face-to-face and have a dialogue and what? Like, especially since I was so steeped in intimate partner and sexual violence at the time, uh, it seemed unimaginable to me, right? But Susan really um, just kept pressing me. And then I went I went back to India, actually, after I, I clerked for a year, and then I went back to India, back to Dharamshala, um, where I was studying. I wanted to know more about sort of what was the Tibetan system of justice prior to Chinese occupation? And what did we have to learn from it? And I was, you know, email was pretty new back then. And Susan and I were emailing from time to time. And she, I, everything I was telling her about what I was learning about the Tibetan system prior to Chinese occupation, she was like, oh, that's restorative justice. Like, I've been telling you about this the whole time. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. So the minute I got back, um, she uh, introduced me to some folks. And I, I went to a few trainings um, with her. And after the first one, uh, that I attended, I, it really just, it, I was like, oh, this, this is it. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So eternally indebted to Susan for having, um, you know, shown me that this wasn't, it, it, not, not to say that we mustn't look to the indigenous, uh, roots of these teachings, right? In Tibet, in indigenous communities across North America, New Zealand, um, the world over really uh, people have known how to do this uh, for a long time Mennonite folks um, uh, also uh, really have learned so much of what I know from Mennonite people so um, so these are things that um, I think it's really important to note that it comes from a lot of places but I, I got my start sort of in more traditional western restorative justice
0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival June 5th to June 16th in NYC Hear Judd Apatow talk about his experience making iconic films like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Watch Hacks actress Hannah Einbinder's stand-up special. Experience films that make you laugh out loud with fan-favorite comedians like Group Therapy, where Neil Patrick Harris, Nicole Byer, Tig Notaro, and more hilariously detail their experiences with mental health. Outstanding, A Comedy Revolution, a film investigating the impact of queer comedians with Lily Tomlin, Rosie O'Donnell, and Bob the Drag Queen, and Sacramento, a lighthearted narrative comedy with Michael Sarah and Kristen Stewart, and much, much more. Get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com.
2: So what is it? What is restorative justice?
1: It's it's interesting to ask that question because sort of two of my teachers, one is Howard Zare, who's called the grandfather of restorative justice. And I feel that he theorizes and teaches restorative justice in, in incredibly brilliant ways. Um, That can help those of us who are trained uh, in Western thinking. Right. And then my other mentor and teacher is Robert Yazzie, just the chief former chief justice of the Navajo Nation, who um, when people talk about Howard Zare's definition of restorative justice, Robert Yazzie finds it to be hubris that we think that we can define restorative justice. Right. It's a way. Um, It's a way of life. Um, It's a way of being. Um, But I will will name Howard's definition, which I think is really beneficial, right? So he says, uh, it's an approach to justice that involves, uh, to the extent possible, all those who have a stake in a specific offense to collectively identify and address harms, needs, and obligations in order to put things as right as possible. And um, I think there's so many pieces of that definition that just call my heart, you know, Um, and I think how it ends putting things as right as possible, I think is a really important place uh, to start in that, like when we're talking about homicide, right, things are never going to be put 100% right, it can't be. Uh, When we think about things like truth and reconciliation commissions, you know, we're never going to turn back the clock. So this is not—that's not what it's talking about. Restorative justice isn't asking us to return or restore to some pre-existing state. Um, that's a big critique of the word, but rather that it calls us to be restored to our wholeness, uh, as individuals and collectively. Uh, I think that that's really what the restored is—restored uh, to our spirit, restored uh, to how it is that we're supposed to be. You know, and words like ubuntu, you know, come to mind when I think about restorative justice. Right, this. Uh, This word that really we came to know here in the U.S. through the South African Truth and Reconciliation, right? Um, It's defined sort of as I am because we are or a person is a person through other people. Like this is the basis of restorative justice.
2: I've heard you talk about the three questions the current system asks, and and the ones that restorative justice asks. Can you can you go through those? Yeah,
1: those are also Howard's questions. So it's interesting; he has more than three. Uh, there's six actually, but we we get stuck on the first three, and I think the other ones are also really important. Um, so, but the three questions are uh, it's, this is the paradigm shift uh, that restorative justice calls us to, and I I really love the way Howard frames restorative justice as a fundamental paradigm shift. You know, so. Uh, There's a debate within the restorative justice academic community um, about whether or not restorative justice should be framed as a a paradigm shift or sort of as what I would call an add on to the current criminal legal system. And uh, the three questions are this so, in the current way of thinking, we generally think of what law was broken, who broke it, and how should they be punished, right? That's sort of the The thumbnail sketch of of the criminal legal system as it currently operates, and the paradigm shift restorative justice calls us to, is a completely different set of questions. It asks who was harmed, and what do they need, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs. And so, without that third question, whose obligation is it to meet those needs, it wouldn't be justice, right? It would be just what I do when you know my kid tells me you know that you know, something sad happened to him, right? I'm like, what, what hurt? And how do we fix that? Right? Um, what, what, what do you need, rather? Not how do we fix? it But what do you need? What do you think you need next? But when it, somebody else did it to me, then I'm like, whoa, well, what, what's the justice question that starts to arise there? Right? Um, and um, how do we start to think about making that right with that person? That's, um, that's the justice piece. Um, th- there are other questions that follow those three, and one of them were what are the causes? And I think that that's a really, really important piece uh, that is missing from the current criminal legal system, um, is it really a really deep excavation of the root causes of the harm. Um, I think some of the critiques of restorative justice and the way it's practiced in the U.S. is that we do an insufficient job in the work that we do of getting to root causes. Um, and um, I really love the way my friend Sonia Shah talks about this. She runs the uh, Ahimsa Collective's amazing restorative justice organization here in the Bay Area. And Sonia talks about when we're doing restorative justice well, uh, we don't just stop with causes. We have to go to the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause of the cause. Um, And so that's um, no small task, but something that I am really uh, grateful to be in community with restorative justice practitioners who who do that.
2: I I wanted to see um, if you would walk me, walk us through how this actually works in practice. So imagine that I'm somebody who has survived a crime. Um, I was beaten badly in a mugging and the case, you are alerted to the case. What what would happen? What would your would your conversation first be with me? Would it be with a prosecutor? Like how how would you learn about my case? So this
1: is a really great question, Ezra. And before we get into the story that I would love to walk through with you, like how a case would move forward, right? I think it's important to note that restorative justice can happen from completely outside the system, right? It can be happening and it is happening, right? in families and communities all the time without any system intervention whatsoever right so resolutions of those kinds of harm with people holding space for family and community to come together to hold people directly accountable to the folks that they've harmed that is a thing that is happening without the state so the Restorative Justice Project at Impact Justice, where I work, right, is working in a very particular procedural posture and for very particular reasons, right? So we work in the felony pre-charge context, which means post-arrest this case. So let's let's look at your scenario here. And then, you know, we can circle back as to what all the other ways that Restorative Justice plays itself out in prisons, post plea, um, you know, as a sentencing circle. There's all kinds of different ways it can happen, right? But so let's walk through your scenario. Um, So if this had happened to you, right, if we are operating in relationship to the system, the first person really finding out about this through is uh, the prosecutor. So the young person is arrested. In theory, there could be police diversion, but I don't particularly trust police to not just cherry pick or to be able to send serious enough cases. My experience has been that police departments divert low level stuff that probably shouldn't have even been arrested in the first place. So that's not appropriate for restorative justice because this is a pretty heavy duty accountability model. So we move past the police, uh, the case gets to the prosecutor's desk. And so let's take San Francisco, for example. Let's say this happened in San Francisco. In, In San Francisco, if the case meets a certain set of criteria, predetermined set of criteria, uh, by the district attorney's office, right? And this is a program that was developed when George Gascon was in uh, office. And um, I really credit him with having gone further than any other prosecutor in the nation, to my knowledge, at that time. The decision was made to do discretionless diversion, which is huge for a prosecutor's office, right? To say, this set of cases under all circumstances, when when the person who causes the harm meets these criteria, when the case meets these criteria, the case is automatically eligible for restorative justice, right? So this assures that we're not going to have the massive problem that we have with diversion in the United States, which is that white kids get diverted and kids of color generally do not. And there's data across the nation to support that, right? So... Now that the case, and so let's say the criteria are 17 and younger for this particular program, felonies where there's no weapon involved, let's say. Let's say that that's like what has been involved. Let's say that your case uh, fits that criteria. So what happens is the district attorney sends that case over to a community-based organization that has been trained in facilitating restorative justice dialogues. And that organization takes the case from there and the so there's no probation officer there's no court there's no nothing um the case is sort of held by the da until the community-based organization resolves it and then the the community-based organization goes back to the uh, da and says the case is completed you can just forget it ever happened like choose to not not charge and that's how that goes um so then the case itself what does that look like right um so when it's in this posture where the state is the one referring, the first thing that we encourage community-based organizations to do is actually reach out to the person who's caused the harm and determine their amenability and even, like, some basic, like... Because sometimes, you know, police get the wrong person, right? So if we've literally got the wrong person or... um You know, there's a million other reasons why this is not, you know, might not be, not a million, actually, very few reasons why uh, someone might say, no, I don't want to participate or not, like basic non-amount, refuses to meet with, not interested in diversion. Then we don't want to have reached out to the victim and said, we have this wonderful program, would you want to be participating in, and then find out after the victim is excited about having this opportunity, right, that the uh, person who's caused the harm is not going to participate. So that's-
2: as, as we talk through this, you're, sort of, uh, you're giving me this the sort of like 30,000 foot on this, but I'm actually really curious what to move it actually into the first person. Like when you talk to the person who's caused harm, what is that conversation like? What do you tell them? When you talk to me, like, what would you tell me? Um, because like this, I've been reading about this to, to just put my cards on the table and you read about it, and it's really quite beautiful. And then you think about what are these conversations like? What are these circles like? How do these how how do people bear this when they are in it? And, and that's a part of this I want to bring bring into it because I think a lot of people are looking right now for alternatives to the way we've we've built this society and I don't think they're primarily in the pro I mean they're, they're partially in the process here but they also just sort of have to be I've heard you say that part of your job is just being comfortable in discomfort and so I'd like to, to try to live in that part of it as well.
1: Well yeah you know it's interesting the comfortable with discomfort isn't something that I experience so much anymore in these particular meetings um, those initial meetings are just pure love. Right. It is really, really important to let young people who have caused harm know that we believe in them and we see them and we are here for them to help them make things right and to turn their lives around. And so if that sounds like it's coddling, I would just point you to the data about how much more effective it is what we do. (laughs) So if we really want to say for society, we need to love children when they make mistakes. And love humans, love adults when we make mistakes, which I surely do. And so that first meeting, really, I would probably the first words I would say to somebody when they walk in the door. So like we send a letter and then there's a phone call and it's like gently asking people to come in the door. It's been some time uh, as or since I've done this myself. Now I'm advising other organizations and how to build these programs. And I really miss it. And so I'm really enjoying answering this question, right? And just thinking back on the last case I did where like the first time I sit down with a young person and and their parents, their mother, their whoever it is that we're meeting with them. Ideally, uh, guardians show up, parents, uh, caregivers of some kind. But sometimes I'm meeting with a kid alone, right? And it really is just saying, thank you. Thank you for walking. Thank you for having the courage to walk in the door and meet with me. You have no idea who I am. And you have no reason to trust me. And I think that's where we're going to start. And I, you know, I already trust and believe in you just because you're here. And I would really love to know more about you when you're ready to tell me, right? And it's really strengths-based. It's really like, and then at a certain point, you know, pretty quickly we have to, because we got this case hanging out there, right? That does also need to be moved and resolved, right? We have to get to the point where this person knows that I love and trust them enough that they can tell me what happened. You know, and that's generally the question. Like at a certain point, after I've asked them about what are you good at, what do you believe in about yourself, who's there for you, who's in your family, uh, who you're in connection with, like how do we start to build the other people we need to be pulling in to help support you to make this right and to turn things around and to get the help you've needed? Um, and what else is going on in your life? And who are we going to hook up to help you with that? And you deserve that. And I know it's scary to ask, and I'm going to be here with you while we ask. And then, yeah, at some point we get to. So what happened? You know, what'd you do? (laughs) And who'd you do it with? And, you know, and so a part of why that works really is that very early on we have to tell people about what I like to I used to call my reverse Miranda, which is that I get agreements from the district attorneys and all the jurisdictions we work in that nothing that they say in restorative processes can be used against them in a court of law. And so when I tell them, listen, I'm not here to bust you, right? I'm actually here to Prevent you from being busted in the way in which you understand being busted, right? This is not about being busted. This is about manning up. This is about womaning up. This is about being strong and making things right. And, you know, um, the Maori people talk about this word mana, which has a lot to do with life force and dignity. And uh, so, what I'm trying to do um, in all restorative processes, we want everyone to walk out with their mana intact or increased. Uh, that's the goal. And so um yeah, so this is um this is what I'm trying to do in those initial meetings. Eventually we, you know, try to get the whole story out there and then we start to, you know, have follow-up meetings. And once there's some basic amenability, then there's the going to uh the person who's experienced harm, the crime survivor and having the conversation with them. And with them it's it's really approaching them not from the perspective of, hey, there's this great program that's going to prevent a kid from going to, you know, youth lockup. How about we participate in it together to prevent children from being, you know, criminalized? Like, you can't approach a crime victim that way, right? And I think that that's where some lower um, victim participation rates can come from in some restorative justice programs, right? You really have to start from Howard's questions, like, how are you harmed and what do you need? And being really, really leaning into people's suffering, right? What we hear in those meetings is that a burglary might actually trigger memories of childhood sexual abuse, right? Having someone violate the boundaries of your home might have actually brought up some deep, deep stuff about other things. And so what does it mean to be present to and lean into the suffering of that crime survivor and giving them space to tell you all their stories, and then at a certain point the conversation generally starts to turn towards who did this to me and you can you can say at that point well actually we know and you know this and 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 you know when they start to have questions you can say would you like to ask that directly of the person who who harmed you right and so when you when you do things in that order it is unbelievable the number of people who say yes
2: so one of the things i want to pull apart here is I'll be honest that one of my misconceptions coming into studying this a little bit closer was that I understood restorative justice as part of like a broad spectrum of ideas that come from the idea that we overly criminalize society, we treat people who commit crimes as nothing more than the, the worst thing they've ever done, and we should be a more compassionate society. And in, in things I've heard you say in Danielle Sered's great book, um, Until We Reckon, there's much more of a focus and I had understood on what it is that the victim needs, and I'd like to maybe pull apart this idea that this is an an easier process or a more compassionate one, with whether or not it is giving the people who survived a terrible harm um, something more. So I've I've been mugged here, right? In this hypothetical, I I've, I've been lucky, and I have not been mugged and terribly beaten. Although I actually know people who have or who have been shot, and I get a call from you. And I'm furious and I'm scared. And the thing that I can trust or think I can trust now that the person who assaulted me has been arrested is that they will be punished, that there will be some kind of retribution exacted from them for what they did to me. How does this process become more attractive to me? What does it offer me that punishment— and the knowledge they cannot get out for years and harm me or anyone else again. What does it give me that that doesn't?
1: Well, I think one of the things we have to start with is disabusing folks of the notion that that's even true, right? The vast majority of arrests do not result in convictions uh, that keep people locked up for any length of time, right? That crime survivors think that, I mean, there are many studies, even including the death penalty, um, where, crime, you know, surviving family members believe that, even witnessing the execution of the person who took their loved one is going to give them some feeling of, you know, release or that there's going to be quote unquote closure. And time and again, the studies show that that isn't true. Right. And so without bringing an agenda of non-punitiveness to survivors, I think it's really important to also let crime survivors know that they're not going to get what they're looking for. Literally, like some survivors are like, I want to go through the system because then I'll be sure to get my um, restitution. Well, I mean, there's no there's literally in most jurisdictions no way, particularly from youth, to enforce restitution. Right. There's the state can't enforce it. So um, but that's not answering in a more specific way. Like, how do I approach a survivor who is naturally looking for what they've been told is justice? Right. Which is somebody getting locked up for what? Was done to them. And I think that I love this analogy that Danielle, uh, Sarah uses, which is about if people have been walking across a desert, and they're starving to death, and there's a hamburger stand, and everybody lines up at the hamburger stand, you can't make the argument that this is the best hamburger stand in the world, right? It's the only one. It's the only thing people have been told that they can, you know, there's people are starving for justice, Right, and I just think that this is so. This is so such a perfect uh, description. I also don't think you can say whether or not people are vegetarians or not. Right, there are no vegetarians because I I am a lifelong vegetarian, and trust me, I would be lined up for that hamburger. So I think we really need to approach survivors from the place of you know being really open minded about what it is and listening, um, and listening and listening and giving honest answers. Right. So there's a way in which victim advocacy taught me this that when people say, I want this, and I want this, and I want this, and I want this, um, it's really important to say, and if that's not possible, what else would you want? You know, because the system doesn't have that on offer. It it says it does. It, it There's the promise of certain things, but they don't generally tend to ring true, right? Even orders of protection can be violated, um, and often are. Even restitution orders can't be enforced. Uh, so it's not, it's not like survivors, ring. even if somebody gets locked up, Um, for all of eternity or even executed. Um, It's not going to bring your loved one back. So now what? And, And sitting with people while they rage through the unfairness of having limited options. And on the restorative justice side, you know, when we get to really go deeper into what might be possible and giving people that openness in the beginning can feel unnerving to some survivors. Just some survivors have never Had anyone ever asked them ever what happened to them or what they needed about anything ever right? So that can be a really discombobulating question, and so there's an amazing amount of patience and listening and an occasional gentle suggesting right. There's sort of four buckets of harm that I think about: the spiritual, um, physical, financial. I'm not remembering the other one. There's another one um, that we sort of think about in terms of monetary. Did I say that one? Um, there's some, you know, these general areas that you might want to make suggestions towards like, you know, when people can't even start to talk about what they could imagine being the right outcome. It's surprising, you know, what people ask is all over the place. I'm always amazed in every case that I've ever worked in. One of my favorite cases that you know, I talk about a lot is this woman asked for this child who had stolen a car that was very, uh, had a lot of sentimental value to her as well. Her father had given it to her and he had passed away. And she was really a tough, tough, tough woman. This crime survivor who was very upset about this car being stolen. And in the end, she asked him to paint her a six foot tall Tinkerbell painting. I and mean, he's just like, really never know. And that that young man, you know, you know, it sounds maybe soft on crime or whatever people might say about um having somebody paint a a tinkerbell but he actually spent an amazing number of hours working on that thing and it and it was so much better than him being locked in a cage
2: what what are some of the most common requests for amends that you hear. So there's the the, the Tinkerbell. So there's the, the, the world of ones one might not expect, but is there a template for this? Does it just truly vary from person to person? I mean, what do you see?
1: It really varies. Um, you know, if there's out-of-pocket costs, there's usually some time spent thinking about that, right? Like if you stole my laptop when you knocked me over, right? And the laptop shattered and it cost this amount of money when you, by the time I got it back from you, whatever. Um, It's, I want my stuff back is surely a thing. Um, I want money for what it costs me to replace that thing. Uh, Or sometimes my insurance only covered this much. And, or, um, you know, sometimes it's an apology. It's answers. If it's a fight, if it's a pretty severe physical fight where people really harmed others, there's some agreements that we've put into place where, you know, you don't come to this, you know, part of uh, the school campus, or you don't, you don't walk through this neighborhood, um, you know. You don't hang out with these people anymore uh, because I want to go to those parties. Um, those kinds of things are, are some of the agreements that that people have done a really good job of sticking to. A lot of it is really answers to questions. I think is a huge part of of it. Why did you pick my house? You know, how long have you been you know staking out this place? Um, you know, there's some things like that that people want to know. But it it really does vary. It's hard to. <laughs> It's hard to say what one particular thing is. The plan to repair the harm that we try to walk people through has four parts. Doing right by the person you've harmed, your parents or caregivers, right? Uh, Doing right by the community and doing right by yourself. And it's interesting to me the degree to which crime survivors want to weigh in on category four, which is doing right by yourself. Crime survivors want to see folks who've caused harm turn their lives around so much of what crime survivors are asking for is I never want you to do this to anyone else again. And so there's almost ways in which without crime survivor being in deep relationship with the person who's caused the harm, like they might not be the wisest person. So these plans are created by consensus. And so uh, when the crime survivor is like, you, you know, you need to be doing football practice more or something, right? It's like the crime survivor doesn't really have that kind of relationship with a kid who's experienced the harm necessarily. Um, and so then it's important to really let the young person and their family lead that part of the discussion. But um, But it is always moving to me to see how much survivors really want to see this not happen again to others and also just want to see this young person turn their life around. So that's quite moving.
2: What if the plan is breached? What if an agreement is made and the person who's committed the crime does not carry it out?
1: So we reconvene the circle. I think that it's really important to understand that when things aren't going right, there's always a reason. Right. And so we've had to you know, we so the organizations that do this work check up on the young person who's caused the harm. And they make sure that this person is really supported to do the things that they said they were going to do, right? So one of the columns in the chart of the things that get done is who's going to help you with this, who agrees to help you with this. And those people need to be in the circle committing to doing these things. And often we find that when a young person isn't doing a part of the plan that they said they were going to do, it's because somebody, you know, somebody was under-resourced to keep up with their promise to do the things that they said they were gonna do with this young person, drive them to football practice, take them to this after school job where they can make the money to, you know, pay this person back, whatever it is. It just something's fallen through with people's ability to to get it done. Um, and so then Instead of just saying, this kid was, you know, when you think about the criminal legal system, you were late for your probation meeting, and so we're going to revoke your probation, right? Or even if it's more like you peed dirty, right? Like you you came up with a, a urinalysis that shows you've been using drugs, right? Like, what is going on that that happened? Instead of just, okay, you had your chance. We haven't given these kids a chance ever. We have taken away chance after chance after chance after chance so i think that our systems uh, that we our approaches to young people who caused harm uh need to give us more chances to get it right by them uh, so that they can uh, start to get more things right
2: well, one of the things that is striking to me about this when i when i try to imagine it in its fullness is it in the the criminal legal system as you put it uh what we do is we give the state a lot of power over the person who has perpetrated a crime And in this, it seems we give the victim or the survivor a lot of power over that person. And that that seems to me to be a quite big difference, but one that we don't actually talk about all that much.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I would say that we give the community and every single person in there power over themselves. I would like to think that we're giving everybody power. I think we're giving the young person power over themselves as well. I mean, there is a rebalancing of power in some ways that needs to occur when you've been victimized. Right. That, you know, we always say we need to get our power back after we've been um, we've experienced uh, things like this. But, you know, it's really about empower, get creating restorative justice creates these like containers in which people um, can collectively rebalance power imbalances, can call people to uh, the good power within them to to do good things. Right. So um, I wouldn't put it as victims having power over because these agreements are are consensus based, right? So everybody um everybody has the power to veto, everybody has the power to to build it, right? Um and but particularly the person who's caused harm, the person who's experienced harm. The last questions that we ask in the plan creation process are um we ask the crime survivor, like, are you really satisfied with this? Like does this plan, like after we've negotiated, negotiated it and it's gone around and around, right? Um, and we ask the young person, like, is this a setup for failure? Like, can you really do this? Are you really down for this? Or are you feeling like you have to say yes to this? Like, what parts? And this conversation happens in front of the survivor sometimes, right? Like... And that's really important that we develop like deeper understandings of each other's lives and each other's capacities. And I, I wouldn't say that crime survivors drop some of their expectations when they get to know the person who's caused harm out of pity or anything like that. More often, right, that most crime is intra-racial, right? And so these are people who understand each other's lives. Most crimes are intra-community, right? So these are people who know, right? And so it's not, it's not gonna be some surprise that the kid who did this to you. What their life looks like for the most part, right? Um, but it's more that we're talking about everyone being empowered, equally empowered to move forward in a good way. But, but your question does bring to mind this article that I is really seminal in a lot of the restored justice thinking, the movement, and particularly, unless the movement, maybe more the academics, is this article by someone by the name of Nils Christie, who wrote this article uh, called Conflicts as Property. And it's a gross oversimplification of his arguments. But he basically says the state stole our harms as crime survivors, right? Like, it's not me versus my father, right? It would have been the state versus my father. And where am I in that equation, right? And so what I do think restorative justice does, how we're, how we've been influenced, I think, by Nils Christie's argument is that it should be me at the table um, as a survivor of a crime,
2: And it seems to me that something that is important here, and and maybe power isn't exactly the right way to talk about it, but also is the capacity for the survivor to reemerge as the protagonist in their own story. That when you are victimized in a crime, you've lost power in a profound way, but you've also sort of lost your own plot right? You, you had planned one thing and, and, and something else, something potentially quite terrible has happened. And when the state takes over, right, the state has its set of remedies, primarily incarceration. And when you take over, you have all kinds of remedies. And your remedies might be a Tinkerbell. Um, it might be, you know, that this person has to, from what I've read about restorative justice, has to engage in all kinds of self-improvement. But also to some degree, part of it might be that you get to tell a story where you're someone who forgave you get to tell a story where you're somebody who rose above it right you you were the um leader of a circle um that has been written about in a big new york times magazine profile uh, years back about a murder between um a a a young man who killed his girlfriend and the parents entered into restorative justice with with him and something that struck me so much was them sort of saying in that piece that what this did for them was it gave them back control of their story and it gave them back control of their daughter's story. And, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that, the, the the question of who who gets to who gets to have the story when it's the state and who gets to have the story when it's the circle.
1: Oh, such a beautiful um way to put it. I think that um when I think a lot about the Gromares in that case, you know, it really was um it was it was two pieces. One was that you know, listening to the girl mayor say, we get to decide, we have to be able to be a part of deciding what happens with regards to our daughter, right? Like that, that somebody else would be pulling all the shots, deciding how it gets charged, all of that, you know, and I know that the, that the DA in that case was responsive to them and was, was listening to them. Um, but in the end, you know, um, there's a, there's a beautiful, um, uh, show the problem areas that Wyatt Snack had done on HBO a few years ago, and there was an episode on this um, on this particular cases gets covered in in this episode, and the DA actually. Um, w- went on that show which i thought was really generous and amazing and really honest right he was saying like i'm the decider like i decide what happens in these cases and it cuts to uh andy saying uh what i heard from him over and over again he's like how is somebody else the decider about our daughter right um and so i think that that's a, a really important piece of the continued disempowerment that crime survivors feel when the state swoops in and makes decisions for us so um but m- more on the story piece right i think Kate speaks about this so beautifully, and she wrote a book called, um, I think it's called Forgiving My Daughter's Killer. Um, and, you know, when she talks about the restorative justice journey that their family went on, really it was about telling the story differently. And Howard Zare speaks of this so beautifully, he really literally uses the word "restoring." That, that we're all restoring what, what, what happened. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this is an incredibly important piece the restoring for survivors. Um, and it's not just a story of power, right? It's definitely also, and it's not always a story of forgiveness, but it is a story that the, you know, maybe there are multiple protagonists in a sense. Um, and so that's, and that includes the person who caused the harm. Um, th- one of the most powerful things to do is to confront face-to-face the person who has caused you harm and to ask these horrific questions. And to sit, Andy talks about, Andy Gromero talks about literally his heart hurt when he was listening. He said he'd never felt anything like that before. When he was literally listening to Connor explain, answer his question, what happened? Like, how did you take our daughter's life? Like, this is stuff that would have never come out in trial, right? And the, the courage and the bravery to be able to ask those questions and get those answers, demand those answers uh, from the person who did this. Uh, the only person who has Uh, the answers to those questions is Connor. And for some time I was, as I was preparing Connor to come into the circle, I knew the answers to those questions. It was really, really important for him to say them directly uh, to Andy
2: and Kate. One thing that seems very different about this approach is that there is punishment in it, but it seems to be very built on the idea of transformation that you're creating space for people to change, you're creating space for people's relationships to change, right? Say a relationship that at one point was defined by a harm to be defined then by repair and a reconciliation. What is different about building the system around or building a system around creating space and processes for transformation rather than creating space and processes for punishment and retribution?
1: Right. So yeah, so I would push back and say there actually isn't space for punishment within restorative justice. We, we don't, we, there's space for accountability. It's not just space for, it is accountability, right? And that whether people experience accountability as uncomfortable or, you know, pushing them uh, to, to have to do things that they might not have done otherwise is not intended as punishment. And I think this is incredibly important, right? Um, it is intended uh, to help this person become their best self. So how is it different in creating those things? I mean, I think that it really starts from Ubuntu. Again, like I am because we are. It is a fundamental moral and philosophical shift that acknowledges interdependence. Uh, There is no out or away that we can send people to to solve crime. They are coming home. Prison sentences are generally short, and all they do is derail a future. And that derailed future is amongst us forever, And that is a really, really important piece of it. We don't, you know, and so it is, it's, this is grounded in you belong to me. We belong to one another at the risk of sounding, I don't know. No, I won't even say that at the, at the risk of telling the truth. um, You know, it's really about unconditional love. And that doesn't mean that there's no accountability. If anything, when I think about, again, like good parenting with my child, right? It's like my unconditional love for him. Uh, involves me seeing every single thing that he does uh, that he is willing to share with me and and helping him uh do things in a good and right way right um including his errors including uh um the times when and he's the one who's made the mistake right so this is this is really important and so yeah I'm grounded on interdependence grounded on um and really bringing that heart. Restorative justice facilitators, I often say, need to be equally partial. Mediators, uh, tend to be trained to be neutral, right? Especially the way we learn it in law school, right? It's like this neutrality and this is, is really important, not being biased. You know, I am deeply, deeply biased in all directions. I want to see every single person who walks in there, be better, do better, feel better, um, not just feel better, but like live better after a restorative justice process, uh, and so that equal partiality, that desire that each person, in—that's that's the goal uh, of this. That's the that's the ground it stands on.
2: How connected, either in its lineage or just in the way you see it practiced, is restorative justice to sort of philosophies of of nonviolence? You mentioned Ahimsa is the name of one of the restorative justice groups. I've been studying that world more recently, and of everything I've come across, this seems to be the place where those ideas are instantiated most, but I'm curious how explicit that is or or how much there's a connection there.
1: Right. So uh, somebody who really influences me on this is Kazu Haga. And... um, Kazu has a new book on Kingian nonviolence uh, that I think is really, really valuable. Um, and so this is not a tepid nonviolence, right? I think that it is deeply aligned with the things that Kazu is talking about, restorative justice. And it's not unsurprising that Kazu also works with the Ahimsa Collective, um, and and he also does his own amazing work, um, uh, independent of that. And so, you know, restorative justice's alignment, to my mind, you know, I'm deeply, I was deeply influenced um, in some ways by Gandhi's work earlier in my life, and I think where there's an overlap is in this place where uh, there is action towards a positive end, right? That we don't let injustice stand, uh, whether it's in these small circles or out in the world, right? And so so I think that there is something in it. I do think that, I mean, I think that the criminal legal system is inherently violent, right? And that power over is always violent. Um, and that restorative justice uh, seeks to do the opposite, again, not by being tepid or or, you know, the way in which restorative justice is cast is some sort of soft thing. Um, when you look at some of these plans, I mean, you know, what's interesting is that sometimes it's the defense bar in a city that we are beginning to work in that pushes back the hardest on restorative justice, because they want to be in the room to help their clients or their would-be clients, right? um, Get a sweeter deal, right? And they think that some of these outcomes that come out of restorative justice are actually pretty, like it's more stuff than they would have had to do if they'd gone to court, maybe, right? They go to court, they get a record, and then they do less stuff for the victim, right? The person that they've harmed, rather. Um, You know, when I think about um, restorative justice, some of these plans are pretty uh, onerous. They're pretty intense. They ask a lot of the person. um, And as Connor says so beautifully, right? Recently, he was filmed in prison. He is serving a lengthy prison sentence um, that the DA would not go down as far as the Gromeres were asking for. Uh, and so Connor is serving 20 years, um, which, I mean, it would have been surely life uh, without possibly um, had we not had this restorative justice process. But in the middle of this 20 year sentence, Connor says to this day, right, that um, that meeting was the hardest thing he's ever had to do in his entire life. And this is a man who's serving time. So I think it's really important to know that restorative justice isn't soft and that nonviolence isn't soft. This is important, the way in which Kazu talks about this. We're not talking about non-hyphen violence. We're talking about nonviolence, one word. Uh, And that is an incredible force for good. Um, So, um, and a force of resistance, uh, a a force of resistance against oppression. Um, So I think that that's, uh, it's deeply aligned and something that I want to explore more. I definitely would want to encourage people to read Cousin's book about it.
2: The reason I asked that about nonviolence is, um, and, and I agree with you on the 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 non, it's not non-violence. It's a tricky word. Um, and until I began reading into it more deeply, one of the things I didn't quite realize was how much it's not the absence of something, but a strategy of engagement and really built around the idea that the point of what you're doing is to change other people's hearts you're not trying to punish them. You're not trying to beat them because you have to keep going on in community with them. You have to change them. And I just wrote this piece of published today, um, sort of out of a conversation I had here with Tanasi Coates a few weeks ago about trying to imagine what a nonviolent state would look like. But but what's so striking to me what restorative justice plays a big role in that piece I just wrote. And and what's so striking to me about it is how much it seems to. Im- body that. It is a very, very difficult form of practice. As you say, some of the people go through it, it's the hardest thing they've ever done, where you're allowing that difficulty, you're accepting that difficulty, because that is how you're likely to get to change in community. And there are other things that in some ways get coded as tougher in our society, but they're probably easier to go through, um, certainly easier to, to, to conduct at scale. And they don't get you to change in community. They get you to punishment and continued resentment and, and and friction. And I guess it's a little bit of a long way of saying or asking, does this scale? Like, can this actually be a replacement for the system we have now in a world where we did move towards, say, prison abolition? Like, is this... Is restorative justice to the extent it's a paradigm change, not an add-on, can it be a replacement? Can it can it be what we do, not just something that a couple of people do?
1: Yeah, I definitely want to let the listeners know that this was not a setup and I did not feed you this question, but this is literally what my organization is <laughs> working on and why I don't get to uh, be in these circles very much anymore. We're literally strategizing the scaling, like this is our goal. When I think about... The, The the totality of ending mass criminalization in America as we know it, right? There's so many pieces, so many amazing people across the nation doing work in so many different ways um, at dismantling what exists. And then in the end, we're going to need this other thing that we're going to need. Like people are still going to keep harming each other, right? Like, um, you know, I, I dream of a day and I think I look to Mariam Kaba a lot who constantly reminds us to look to that horizon right of a day when we're not going to need anything that we have today um that you know if everyone's needs were truly met etc and even then you know in 500 years from now and i'm seeing some sort of you know star trek future where you know everyone's needs are met etc there's still going to be harm right there's still going to be egos there's still going to be right like as a buddhist i can say until every single human is fully enlightened we're still going to be hurting each other right and so what what are we going to need instead? And so my my hope has been to to build that for when we get to the place when, you know, it, instead of being a part of the act of dismantling, I think that's a lot to ask of restorative justice, to be the thing that dismantles and be the thing that we use after it's dismantled, right? Um, and so here we are, you know, I think of it in terms of like, In the Audre Lorde quote, we can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, getting that wrong, but something to that effect. And I've been thinking about like trying to use restorative justice to end mass criminalization is sort of like trying to get the master to dismantle his own house with indigenous people's tools, Mennonite people's tools, like that's not going to happen, right? So how do we build this other world instead and have it be ready uh, and have it be continuing to expand and keeping track of the data to show that it is actually so much more effective um, than uh, the criminal legal system as, as we know it, right? Um, and so and we've been doing all of that. Um, and we're starting to think about scaling. What does that look like? And how does that happen? So we're up against a lot in this process. It is really hard to answer this question when the structural realities of operating in tandem with a criminal legal system literally make it impossible, right? So we have to get these memorandum of understanding from any every jurisdiction, right, where it's guaranteed that things are not going to operate. We need the funding. We need the, these are the sort of things, but are the tools there? Is the whole template for how we could um, have restorative justice in every single place in this nation available. Yes, my team literally has put these things together. We have a toolkit, we have the trainings, we have the you know all the assistance for these community based organizations to, you know, build their, I don't say replicate because we are not trying to McDonald's, it's not like making little impact justices all over the nation. It's instead, it's, it's working with Soul Sister Leadership Collective in Miami uh, to get, to get them what they need so that they can hold this down in Miami and it can grow and grow and grow and be available uh, for taking these things on, right? It's, it's working with uh, YASP in Philadelphia, right? And these are all in places where we've, particularly in places where we've had amazing district attorneys like, you know, Larry Krasner and George Gascon, and people who've been willing to do this, right, Working with community works in Alameda County and Rise in Richmond, and helping these folks, uh, they're all ready to go. Like everybody's ready to do this. Um, and it really is a matter of us taking it to the next step of figuring out how uh, f- how for these folks to get a portion, a portion of what it is that we spend. On uh, mass criminalization and, and even on policing, right? So this aligns beautifully with this defund moment, right? Where people are asking, like, um, you know, in Berkeley, seventy-five million dollars uh, of the general fund a year, thirty-eight percent of our general fund goes to the police, right? In Oakland, it's 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 more like forty-five percent, I think, of the general fund, like two hundred ninety million dollars uh, goes to, to policing in Oakland, and. You know, we're asking for like a million. We're asking for like you know so we're asking for three million, right? in these cities and 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 it should be more um if we were to be operating um, at best practices. but it, it scaling is absolutely possible. And you know, we have a plan for that. Um, and it it needs to ha- happen um alongside all the other amazing work that is happening. Uh, to reduce uh, our overreliance and, and our reliance at all on mass criminalization.
2: And, and let me ask the reverse question of scaling. These are practices, approaches, values that seem very relevant to, to our everyday lives. I'm, I'm I'm curious how doing this work cha- has changed your, if you're comfortable talking about it, or could change ones if you're not. Parenting, marriages you know, the relationships we actually have in our lives where harms happen and and we have to go on in community together.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. Um, I think it's the thing I've gotten the most out of this, right. And my spouse is extremely private person. And so, um, it's kind of funny for him to be married to the most, um, sort of, um, I, I share about my history and my life so regularly. Right. Um, but, and he is a part of it, right? And so we argue with a talking piece. we He is an incredible circle keeper. He has done restorative justice work in the past, and he's really one of the best keepers I've ever seen. We've kept circle with his family. We've kept circle in our family. We definitely use circle with our son in restorative justice processes you want to have a set of values right and uh, you, those are co-created at the beginning of restorative processes where we talk about what are the values we're going to hold um and let's tell a story about a time in which that value was respected or disrespected um, and then when we create those values uh, amongst that small group and so when my friends were having marital problems and we were keeping circle for them we started with values like what is the values of this group that we're going to do circle is, and and they ended up separating and and divorcing. And what does it look like to use circle to have that happen in a good way, right? I think about like all the money that people (laughs) save on like marriage counselors, if your communities were just having circles when their friends were getting divorced, right? Or um, not that they, you know, not that therapy is not also beneficial to those folks or whatever, but this is really, um, um, this is something that we do. And with my spouse and I, you know, instead of the values, we actually have a framed copy of our wedding vows on our wall. And and those are the underlying values. That's what we promise to each other. And so when we're really arguing, uh, we start uh, by standing in front of those vows and reading them out loud to one another. And then we sit down with the talking piece and we pass it back and forth. And it is an incredible blessing to, like, I think we have to start with ourselves in our organization, my, my Restore Justice Project, our organization, when we are arguing, when we've got problems, like this is, this work is not easy. Um, and we walk our talk, right. We have real conversations. We develop deep relationship with one another and it is an incredible blessing. And I work with Ashley George, who is, um, you know, the associate director of this, and she lives this stuff every day in her life as well. So incredibly, uh, incredibly
2: beneficial. I think it's a good place to, to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: I think the book that has been absolutely most influential in my life uh, is a book actually by the Dalai Lama, and it's called For the Benefit of All Beings. And it's the Dalai Lama's commentary on uh, the Bodhicaryavatara, which is uh, the way of the Bodhisattva. I think that there is more to learn about restorative justice, actually, and Ahimsa and uh, interdependence and, and Ubuntu and all of it in that book than any other text I've ever read. I really also love, as does my mentor, and uh, so many other dear, dear people in my life. It turns out this is a lot of people's favorite book, which is uh, Thomas Kuhn's *Structures of Scientific Revolution*. I think that you know this this has opened us a lot of us up to notions of paradigm shift and what that looks like and how it operates. I love looking to other. Disciplines, right? I don't really understand math and science at all, but, but uh, there's a way in which that text, when I first read it, and I try to get back to it from time to time, reminds me that we are calling people to a to a paradigm shift in restorative justice. And what is that? How do we operationalize paradigm shift? Is something I think that's really important to think about. And then I think about forgiveness a lot and problematizing it, right? I, I think it's important not to conflate restorative justice and forgiveness. Um, that forgiveness is really an intra-individual journey towards letting go of one's own anger and is not sort of like a policy or an expected outcome of restorative processes um, or a required, you know, it's not a prerequisite for participation. And I really love The Sunflower uh, by Simon Weisenthal, The Sunflower on the Possibilities and Limits of Forgiveness. I think it's the full title. And um, I think that it is uh, really this, this, taking us deep into unthinkable harm and grappling with this question when we're asked to forgive and for whom can we forgive? um, I think is one of the really, the important things that I think we need to be keeping in mind at this time, especially today when I think, again, we want to rush, rush to like moments of everyone loves everyone. And maybe we do deep, deep, deep down inside, but there's a lot of work for us to do uh, both internally and, um, and in the way in which uh, what what do structures of love really look like for this nation uh, for us to really belong to one another? so
2: yeah, I'm sorry to ask a question after after what I said would be the final, but but is one of the lessons of restorative justice in that in what you just said that there's a desire to try to sequence a demand for forgiveness before harms have been repaired, and that instead of Instead of forgiveness being the the goal, the repair of harms needs to be the goal. Forgiveness is something that people can talk about after that, but it is not like the the demand is not forgiveness. The project is repair.
1: Yes, absolutely. I don't know if I have much more to say on that than what you just said, Ezra. But well, what I think that is really powerful, too is that you know Brian Stevens says that um truth and reconciliation are sequential. And and I think forgiveness maybe comes a bit before, or maybe it depends on how you define reconciliation, right? Um, And there are a lot of steps in the middle, and one of them is definitely needs to be, you know, accountability and uh, repair, right? You can't, you're not going to reconcile, you're not going to have forgiveness, you're not going to have the yummy stuff without doing the work, right? This is true in all of our relationships every day, Right? We don't get the yummy stuff unless we do the work. And the work of love is 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 not easy and it's not tepid. It's not gentle all the time, but it is always, always worth
2: it. Sujatha Baliga, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you to Sujatha Baliga for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Again, if you have questions for the Ask Me Anything episode, send them to EzraKleinShow at com. Thank you to Rojay Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.